0: Seventy-five years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up ten concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. Good day and welcome to the Scapegoat Cities radio broadcast, the show that brings you a snapshot of daily life for Japanese Americans in the ten camps of the U.S. government's War Relocation Authority. We get our news from the Japanese Americans themselves, who publish their own newspapers at each of the camps under government supervision. Each item in today's broadcast comes to you from the newspapers published on Saturday, August 21st, 1943. About a year after most of the camps open. As always, we're brought to you by Post Toasties Cornflakes, everyone's favorite breakfast cereal. Don't say cornflakes, say post toasties. Ghostly apparitions and a man of steel. That's what many people in the camps are talking about on Saturday, August 21st. Why, you ask? Stay tuned until later in the broadcast. First, some news about summertime excursions. Granada, Colorado. 80 Japanese-American Boy Scouts, ages 12 to 19, have left the Amachi Relocation Center for a 10-day work trip to Mancos, Colorado, near the famous Mesa Verde cliff dwellings to help dismantle buildings at an abandoned Civilian Conservation Corps camp and bring them back to Amachi for reassembling. Accompanying the boys are seven parents, the Scout Commissioner, Edward Tokunaga, Dr. Tadashi Fujimoto of the camp's hospital staff in case of injuries, and three Caucasian chaperones from the staff of the War Relocation Authority. The boys aren't getting any wages, other than the chance to enjoy being out in nature and away from the guard towers and barbed wire fences of Amachi. Meanwhile, 800 miles to the east, in southern Arkansas, 93 Boy Scouts from the Rower Relocation Center and 80 from the Jerome Relocation Center have just gotten back from a camping trip on the banks of the Mississippi River that they did in the company of a white scouting troop from nearby Arkansas City. In addition to swimming in the Old Man River, playing football and softball, and telling ghost stories around the campfire, the boys got first-hand training in camping, cooking, dishwashing, calisthenics, and nature study. Scoutmaster Holt of the Arkansas City Troop said that an excellent scouting spirit prevailed among the white and Japanese-American youngsters. And scouting adventures aren't just for the boys. At the Minidoka Relocation Center near Twin Falls, Idaho, 78 Girl Scouts just left for the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains of central Idaho for four days of camping, softball, hiking, fishing, and singing in skits around the campfire. They're being led by Miss Vita Satterfield, the camp's school phys ed instructor. It's not just the teenagers heading out of camp for excursions in these hot and hazy days of summer. In northwest Wyoming, at the Hart Mountain Relocation Center, the 14 ballplayers of the San Jose Zebras are packing for a road trip a thousand miles south to the Gila River Relocation Center south of Phoenix for an eight-game series against various baseball teams from that southern Arizona camp. The Zebras' reputation precedes them. They're known to be a powerhouse with players like Babe Nomura, Can pitch, play any other position around the diamond, and knock balls out of the park from the plate. Travel costs are being defrayed by ticket sales at the Gila River Ballpark 25 cents for adults and a dime for the kids. That brings us to the headlines from the world of sports. Baseball season is just opening at the Topaz Relocation Center in central Utah, where a shortage of pitchers and catchers means that only four teams can take the field, one representing each of Los Angeles seattle san diego and san francisco at the jerome camp in arkansas today is center baseball day a day of contests culminating in a matchup of the jerome all-stars and a team of caucasians who are in basic naval training at nearby arkansas a&m college the college boys are looking for revenge against the japanese american all-stars after getting shellacked by them 24 to nothing at their last contest at amachi Everyone is talking about the camp's first triple play in a game pitting the Mercury's against the Skibos in the camp's A-League. With a man on first and second and none out, George Matsuda lined a hot one to Skibos pitcher Ted Abe for the first out. Abe then picked off the man at first, and Shiro Kawamura, the Skibos' first baseman, turned around and fired to second to catch the runner who had started for third. The triple play cut short a Mercury rally in the second inning, but the Mercs went on to take the game from the Skibos, 5-2. to two. Sports other than baseball are in the news as well. At the Chuley Lake Relocation Center in Northern California, near the Oregon border, a big judo tournament is being organized for over 100 white and black belted participants. At Topaz in Utah, organizers are preparing for a series of sumo wrestling matches. And at Heart Mountain in Wyoming, water sports are the talk of the camp, with a new swimming hole opening ahead of schedule, and upwards of a 1,000 swimmers expected under the watchful eyes of four lifeguards, Rocky Nakamoto, Mas Eddie Akiya, and Sugar Suzuki. The Heart Mountain Sentinel, the camp newspaper, made waves with a splashy story about the swimming hole that's worth quoting. Residents who've seen the recently opened swimming hole on a hot afternoon are catching memories of sandy Pacific Coast beaches with their hundreds of sunbathers and swimming enthusiasts. Young children building forts and castles in the wet sand and running from each foam covered wave. Mothers and fathers watching lovingly from under beach umbrellas. Young fellows in the water. Pretty girls bathing in the sun, dark glasses and white stuff on their noses, looking for all the world like Hollywood starlets. With a little imagination, one can see the pounding waves and typical sights at some Southern California beaches. Even though the swimming hole's sand beach is a narrow strip, and the sand is chocolate-covered dirt, even though the waves are muddy ripples, even though the water is murky and dirty-looking, still, the pool is a sight for sore eyes. According to the newspaper, a bit less happy than the swimmers are the members of Heart Mountains Golf Club, who, while golfing on what they like to call the world's most hazardous course, have recently been reaching into cups for their balls to find cactus spines planted by practical jokers. Meanwhile, at Tule Lake, the scrappy doubles tennis team of Ted Nakao and Joe Nishihara recently defeated Saab Mariyama and Kei Nakagiri in straight sets, 6-2, 7-5, on a makeshift court that's about to be bulldozed to make way for a new school building. At the Post and Relocation Center in Arizona, it's the weather that's on everyone's lips. Cleanup is continuing after a twister touched down in camp, blowing the roofs and adobe facades off of three school buildings, blowing vents out of the roof of five warehouse buildings, damaging 285 sacks of rice, washing out roads, and toppling cottonwood and elm trees. Luckily, nobody was injured in the storm, but 500 two-month-old chicks were not so lucky, drowning in the torrential downpour. There's considerable fear at the Amachi camp in Colorado but it's coming not from natural, but supernatural causes. While on his way to the latrine, Mr. Hirokichi Miyakawa recently reported seeing a mysterious ball of fire about six inches in diameter emerge from a mess hall and slowly drift southward, about 20 feet above barrack roofs, dipping and rising as it went until it disappeared over Block 7. It's not clear whether this was related to a sighting of what's being called the Ghost of Amachi described as the beautiful daughter of Ochini, the Indian tribal chieftain of the Arkansas Valley. Princess Ochini is rumored to be pacing the streets of Amachi, according to one frightened eyewitness, and even taking showers in latrine buildings. Camp policemen were dispatched to investigate these concerning apparitions, but found nothing to substantiate the sightings. Some think these ghostly goings-on have more to do with the recent heat wave than with the world beyond. Say, Have you grown tired of your sorry breakfast of burned toast and eggs that have never had a sunny side? Or your soggy cereal sopping up all the milk in your bowl? It's time you tried Post Toasties, the only cornflake made with the post-toasting process that adds extra tenderness, extra flakiness, and extra goodness. Remember, don't say cornflakes, say Post Toasties. We toast them crisp, we toast them light. you can tell by the taste, we toast them there now, back to the news from the camps for August 21st, 1943. The Heart Mountain Sentinel is announcing the first big harvest of vegetables from the camp's farmland for the 1943 season. 4,738 pounds of green beans, 5,447 pounds of red radishes, 1,100 pounds of cucumbers... 2,363 pounds of Napa cabbage and 16,436 pounds of peas will soon be featured in dishes on mess hall tables. At Minidoka, it's not vegetables but chickens in the news. 2,000 chicks have arrived from California to swell the population in the chicken coops to an all-time high of 8,400 birds. 4,500 pullets are pushing out eggs for the mess hall tables, while 1,200 heavier birds are fattening themselves for eating. With a little luck, there will be 10-pound birds to grace Minidoka tables come Thanksgiving. At two other camps, agricultural training opportunities are in the news. Chick-sexing classes were recently held at Poston for those who could meet the requirements of being no older than 30 and having excellent eyesight and nimbleness with the hands. Nearby, at the other Arizona camp, Gila River, classes on livestock management are on offer, with a focus on techniques for branding, castrating, and vaccinating. Gila River is also announcing free rabies shots for dogs in camp. Anyone who doesn't bring his pooch in to get stuck will get stuck having to keep his pooch tied up. Meanwhile, at Tule Lake, the deadline is fast approaching to enter all of the camp's Fido's and Fifi's, in the All-Breed Dog Show, scheduled for next week. Festivals and celebrations are the order of the day at many of the ten camps. At Rower, in Arkansas, plans are coming together nicely for the upcoming county fair with lots of community groups preparing to serve the crowds. Sandwiches and popcorn from the Girl Scouts, soft drinks from the Toonsters, shaved ice from the Zeros, rice crispy treats from the Estrelitas, and noodles and sushi from the Rower Young Women's Association. Other community groups will be running booths with balloon busting, fishing games, milk bottle tosses, and penny pitches. The YWCA will be offering the ladies' necklaces made of macaroni in choice colors suitable for all fall fashions. Amachi's Carnival has just taken place and the organizers have tallied the takings. The Recreation Association took in $910 on drinks and shaved ice, and another 465 on watermelon, while doling out $131 in war savings stamps and savings bonds as prizes to support the war effort. Several of the camps are sharing news of the traditional summertime celebration of Bon Odori, an elaborate ritual Buddhist dance to honor and commemorate ancestors. These are evening affairs, which is a very good thing given the intense August heat. At Minidoka, in Idaho, upwards of 2,000 people took part in the festivities, old and young alike, some of them in kimonos and wooden sandals and other traditional Japanese attire. The older folks danced the customary Japanese steps, but some of the younger generation were seen mixing in some ballroom dancing and jitterbug steps, making for a thoroughly cosmopolitan celebration. Many camp newspapers are covering a reassuring statement from the director of the War Relocation Authority back in Washington, responding to rampant rumors that the camps will all be closing soon, and the residents driven out against their will. Not true, says Director Dylan Meyer. Yes, they hope that more and more people will see the advantage in leaving camp and heading east. They can't head west, because their homes back on the west coast are still off-limits. But they aren't going to force this on anyone. It might seem strange that people are afraid of getting pushed out of a concentration camp. But if they can't go home, and they've lost most of their worldly belongings, life out there can look pretty scary to some of them. And it looks scarier still, when they realize that many people on the outside still see them as an enemy. And that's why the one story to make it into almost every one of the ten camp newspapers is about... Superman. Recently, in this popular nationally syndicated comic strip, reporters Clark Kent and Lois Lane were sent on assignment to investigate what's actually going on inside the Japanese-American camps, where, according to the strip, loyal Americans of Japanese ancestry are indiscriminately mingled with enemy sympathizers who would be glad to sabotage our national welfare at the first opportunity. While visiting an imaginary camp, Clark Kent, looking through walls with his amazing X-ray vision, spots evil-armed Japanese-Americans inside a barrack, plotting a violent escape and then national mayhem to support a Japanese invasion of the West Coast. This led the mild-mannered Clark Kent to shed his business suit and turn into the Man of Steel in order to neutralize this enemy in our midst. For weeks, Superman's efforts have captivated American newspaper readers, and horrified the people in the real camps, who, unlike the rest of the country, know that the antics of the high-jumping hero are all based on pure fiction. On the 21st of August, though, the camp newspapers are running a story to put their readers' minds at ease. And the last panel in the series, Superman is finally setting things straight. In the very last frame, the Man of Tomorrow reminds his readers that most Japanese Americans are loyal, that many are in the armed forces and in war plants, and that not one of them has ever committed an act of sabotage, either on the mainland or in Hawaii. After weeks of lies, Superman is putting the truth back in truth, justice, and the American way. And that's how life is in the War Relocation Authority's ten camps on August 21st, 1943. Actually, that's not the way it was. It's only part of the way it was. Things were happening in the camps that day that the newspapers didn't cover. Difficult things, sad things, anger, and resentment, and boredom, and petty crime, and gambling, and work stoppages, and all manner of tensions running not just between the prisoners and their captors, but between factions within the captive community itself. These were facets of life that the War Relocation Authority didn't want anyone to see. And while it was Japanese-Americans who wrote and edited their papers, they did it under the watchful eye of the government. Rarely did the government engage in outright censorship, killing a story that the editors were intent on publishing. But rarely did they have to, because the government made sure that the newspapers were in the hands of Japanese-Americans who supported its goals and policies. So what the newspapers told us about life in the camps on August 21, 1943 was not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But it was the truth so far as it went. In the face of oppression and deprivation and boredom, Japanese Americans camped and sang and danced and fished and played and celebrated and swam and studied and did countless other things that resilient people do to sustain the dignity of their human lives. Oh, give me land, lots of land under skies above. Don't fence me in, let me ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org. Or better yet, let your friends and family know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Where the west commences And gaze at the moon until I lose my senses I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in